God in heaven, thank you again for this time. We treasure your word, God. That's why we are here. And we want to hear the truth tonight. We want to hear your voice speaking to us. And we want to ask, God, humbly that your Holy Spirit be present here to minister to each one of us. We ask and pray that you continue to guide Pastor Tim as he gives these very important and relevant messages that help us to be ready for Jesus' return. God, please fill this place with your spirit. Again, help us to see Jesus. And may your words be spoken and believed in tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Tonight we're looking at the worst ever time of trouble. In Daniel 12.1, we have a time of trouble such as never was, and it's followed by deliverance. Well, here's the verse. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. We had that in our last presentation, right? Now we're going to pick up the second part of the first sentence. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. So really, between last night and tonight, we're going to cover the first sentence is primarily what we're doing, all right? We'll touch on the other one, but then really come back on it tomorrow night. So, time of trouble, followed by deliverance. In Exodus chapter 5, the plagues and the deliverance from Egypt, you had a time of trouble followed by deliverance, right? And in Revelation fifteen sixteen, you have a plagues, a time of trouble, followed by deliverance. It's all the same pattern, that we have in Daniel 12.1. Now, the interesting thing is, Daniel 12.1 is just as God's rescuing his people, and Revelation plagues are right at the time of the rescue of God's people. So, they're kind of connected here. Look at the parallels. In Egypt, there's a call to come out of Egypt. Go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go that they may serve me. In Revelation, there's a call out of Babylon. Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. In Egypt, the seven last plagues were targeted, and in that day will set apart the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there. Plagues one, two, and three hit Egyptian and Israelite. Plagues four through ten, the seven last of those ten plagues, hit only Egyptian, not Israelite. So the seven last plagues were targeted. In Revelation, there are seven plagues, And they're all targeted. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon men who had the mark of the beast. So in both cases, the seven seven plagues targeted. Now, in Revelation 15, everybody's decisions are made right beforehand, just like Michael stands up right beforehand in Daniel 12. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Interestingly, the temple is the place of God's salvation where Jesus is our high priest and our judge. However, during the plagues, no one can enter. We're going to find out that during the plagues, nobody changes sides. 
But God protects his people. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I will trust. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall come not, not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. If you're trusting in God, the plague won't hit you. A thousand may go down at one side and 10,000 on the other, but it doesn't get you. Now, when I was in high school, I may have been a little crazy. I hiked from Georgia to Maryland two years in a row. It was 1,000 miles each spring. Wonderful backpacking trip. But you come across a section that's a little different. It's got this tall fence, and it's got these shield-shaped emblems that say, no trespassing U.S. government property. And they're all along the fence. And the Appalachian Trail goes through a little hole in the fence. And the white blazes keep going. And any good, true backpacker is going to follow those blazes wherever they go. Little white marks on the trees. Two marks means watch for a turn. One mark is going to keep going straight. (laughs) And uh, so what we know is we're going on to U.S. government property. It's a U.S. Army Ranger training area. And the guidebook will tell you <clears throat> that you need to be prepared that you could step on a landmine. Of course, it's not a real landmine. It's just going to flash and make a bang. Just don't have a heart attack. You, know? <laughs> um, you could get caught in a, in a battle and a war game. And you could be questioned and everything because sometimes one side will act like a backpacker to try and get around. So my buddy and I are going into this area and we're going, I wonder, maybe we could get involved in a, see a a, a real battle going on here, right? War game battle. And we knew they were shooting blanks because they were laying everywhere on the ground and there was ration cans and stuff and And we heard heavy machinery like tanks and stuff moving around down in the valleys. And we're thinking, maybe we get to get see something. But we're up on the ridge. Every once in a while, a fighter plane would buzz over the ridge. And I mean, they were coming over close. It was just a flash and a roar. Choppers coming over. And we make camp midway through this area. And there's a clearing there in a spring. And we're cooking our supper, and as we're starting supper, in comes a Black Hawk helicopter, lands in the clearing right beside us. It's great entertainment in your campsite. And uh, out of the chopper gets, five guys get out, and they're all carrying the different parts of a very large machine gun set up, and all the ammunition, and they walk away, and they go up the hill, and the, mach- and the chopper disappears. A little while later, we're cleaning up from our supper and getting ready to go to bed, but it's still not dark, And in comes another chopper, and this one hovers with its skids just off the ground like they're afraid of landmines and booby traps. And the guys are jumping out the door, and their officer's yelling at them to stay down, and they're crawling through the grass, and all of a sudden the machine gun opens up from the hillside. And these guys are returning fire. What do you do when a firefight breaks out on the edge of your campsite? 
My buddy and I walked around and got out there for a closer look. They're shooting blanks. We walked onto the battlefield, and some of you have been on a real battlefield, and I have respect for that. But we walk onto this battlefield, and they're acting like we're not there, like we're on a ghost on a battlefield. And I think of this. A thousand may go down on one side and 10,000 on the other, but it doesn't come near you. But there's another saying that's not from Scripture, but it has a connection. Ever heard this one? Misery loves? Yeah, you finished it for me. There, was, there were some guys out there that I think were aware of that saying. During the night, they moved the machine gun. They set it up about 40, 50 yards from where we were sleeping. And then it was attacked again. And I can only tell you that a machine gun at 40, 50 yards is a wonderful alarm clock. (laughs) I mean, we were wide awake in a hurry. And my buddy and I whispered to each other. We could hear people moving all over and the assault rifles were firing back, you know. And I mean, it was just all over in the dark around us. And we just whispered to each other, let's not move. (laughs) Let's just stay put right now. And, you know, in the morning, we could tell right where the machine gun was because there's this big pile of spent cartridges. And, you know, there were M16 shells laying all over. And there was a clip from an M16. And I just filled it full of spent cartridges and put it in my backpack. And I carried it on out of there. And when I got to a post office, I mailed it home to myself. In retrospect, I realized that probably wasn't very legal. (laughs) But eventually I lost it, so I don't even have it anymore. But uh, it was interesting. Thousand may fall at one side, ten thousand on the other, but also remember, misery loves company. And somebody had a sense of humor there, but at the time of the end, there's something called Jacob's Trouble. For thus says the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, not of peace, Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor and all faces turn pale? Alas, for that day is great so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble for he shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, <coughs> that I will break his yoke from your neck and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king whom I will raise up for them. Jesus, the Davidic king, is going to be our rescuer. However, it says we go through a time of trouble. If the plagues are hitting Satan's people and they're targeted just like the seven last plagues in Israel, misery loves company. And those that are getting them are going to try and make God's people miserable. But it's through this time that God sets his people free, his Israel of faith. Now, each one of these plagues is going to strike at some aspect of false worship. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth and a foul and loathsome sore came upon men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. Notice it's targeted. Those who have the mark of the beast are the ones who received this sore. And remember, they were deceived into getting the mark of the beast with signs, wonders, and miracles. And God says, you're trusting in signs and miracles, huh? Okay, let's see if you can fix this one 
We know they can't because in the fifth plague, the sores are still there, which also means this is probably a relatively short time period and cumulative. These plagues are building up one on top of another. It would not be pleasant. Second and third. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it became blood as of a dead man and every living creature in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. And I heard an angel, the angel of the water saying, you are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink for it is their just due. And I heard another voice from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Hmm. So the king of the north goes out to destroy and annihilate God's people. Michael stands up. It's the end of a judgment. And there's a time of trouble like there never was these plagues. They've just gone after God's people. And God says, You're bloodthirsty? All right. You get blood to drink. That sounds relatively fair, right? You're trying to shed the blood of my people? You get blood to drink. Thankfully, Isaiah says that our bread and water will be sure in this kind of a time. I'm counting on that one. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given him to scorch men with fire, and men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Notice again, they're not repenting. They're not changing sides. So basically, God turns up the heat and they get really mad. Actually, God said, from way back in Constantine, you had an idea of linking sun worship and the cross, the greater abomination. You want the sun? Here's some more of it. And they don't like it. He said, fine, I'll turn it off. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and they did not repent of their deeds. So God pours out darkness on the seat of the beast. That would be its capital, which I believe to be either Rome or Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Because it says he moves his headquarters there during the time of the end, right at the end. Hmm. But it's not just there. From there, it just kind of covers the world. Everybody knows where it starts from, though. God says, you want to know where the darkness is? Well, that's where it starts and goes around. People don't like darkness very well, especially supernatural, really dark darkness. Now, I've been a cave guide in a wild cave in Arkansas uh, along the Buffalo River. It had 18 miles of passages in it. Interesting cave. The furthest, there's 18 miles of passages, but the furthest you can actually get from the opening of the cave is five miles in. That's a ways underground, especially when you have to crawl a good chunk of it. But I'd get groups back there five miles in and I'd get them to turn out their lights. I did this especially with teenagers. They could handle it better than adults could. I'd get them to turn out their lights and you know they'd turn out and then somebody turned this back on and after a little bit I'd get them to turn them out. I said, hey guys, you know that we are actually caving right along the New Madrid fault line? Right around the year 1800, there was such a major earthquake here. In, in a two-month time period, there were three earthquakes over eight on the Richter scale. Over 2,000 earthquakes. And when I'm talking, all of a sudden the lights come back on like that's going to help you very much. And now their anxiety level's way up, right? 
And you wouldn't believe how quickly they start talking about spiritual things and I can share a gospel presentation with them. <laughs> and then I remind them, you know, this cave was here right around 1800 when the New Madrid fault line broke loose. And it's still here. Whew. They relax a little bit. What I don't tell them, all those rocks we're climbing over used to be part of the ceiling. <laughs> But anyway, I know people are afraid of darkness. Now think for a moment. If you had sores, if you'd been having blood to drink, you'd been sunburned with a supernatural heat from the sun, and now you're in supernatural darkness, would you start wondering what might be coming next? Would you start wondering if maybe you chose the wrong side? (laughs) Yeah. That's all about what the next plague does here, folks. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up so that the ways of the kings from the east might be prepared. Huh. That's an interesting one. This is actually a reference to something that's already happened. Back in the days of Daniel. Daniel was in the city of Babylon. The king was no longer Nebuchadnezzar. It was now Belshazzar, his grandson. And Belshazzar, technically Nabonidus, his dad was king, but Belshazzar is ruling in his dad's place. And uh, Belshazzar is inside the city, and the armies of the Medes and the Persians have surrounded it. Daniel is no longer prime minister. He's just one of the captives. He had a little too much integrity for a king like Belshazzar, and he wasn't welcome in the throne room too much. So they're inside and they have all kinds of food and stuff inside. They have this river flowing through. They've got water. They've got gates that go down to the surface of the water. And if somebody was able to get under there, they've got walls along here on both sides with drawbridges over it. I mean, somebody would be sitting ducks if they came in here. Literally in the water, (laughs) sitting ducks. So It would be really easy to protect the city. And so Belshazzar says, hey, I don't care if we're surrounded. We have more food in here than they have out there. Let's throw a big party. So he gets a couple of thousand of his lords, his people that rule with him, all their wives and girlfriends. And he says, let's get all those gold cups and bowls out of that from that God in Jerusalem that we took from that temple Nebuchadnezzar took, let's get those out and serve the alcohol with them. Why would he think to do that? Because the army outside was led by the guy by the name of Cyrus. It was his army. He wasn't there yet, but it was his army. And in Isaiah, over a hundred years before, Isaiah had said Cyrus would conquer Babylon. He may have known that. And this is his way of saying, don't you ever believe this God of Israel? We conquered him. He's a nobody. And so he gets all those things out. By the way, if you're in trouble, it is not a good time to choose to insult God. Just not a good idea. But he does it. And he's in the midst of the party and everybody's starting to get drunk and they're drinking. And all of a sudden, a hand comes floating over their heads. No arm, no body, no head, just a hand floating over a couple of thousand drunks. 
Wouldn't that have been fun to watch? I just, that's one of the things I wished I could have seen. <laughs> and it goes over to a wall and it starts writing, many, many tekel upharsin. And these letters are burned right into the rock and then the hand disappears, but the letters are still there. And it sends, says the king was so scared, his knees were smoting one against another. <laughs> He's scared. By the way, I've taught rock climbing. I've watched lots of people do that. <sighs> their, leg, their knees just start shaking when they get really scared. <laughs> but he says, if anybody can read that and tell me what it says and what it means, I will give you a gold chain, a royal robe, and I will make you my prime minister right now. The problem is, drunk wise men aren't wise. They couldn't do it. And the queen mother walks in and says, there is a guy among the captives, Daniel by name, that has a connection with the gods. Hey, when people get in trouble, do they think of you that you have a connection with God? I hope so. They say, call Daniel. Daniel comes in. He takes a quick look at the writing. Daniel knew who his armies was on the outside of the city. He knew Babylon's time was up. He looked at that writing and he said, King, you can keep your rewards. I don't want them. I'll tell you what it means. It says, you are weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom will be given, taken from you and given to the Medes and the Persians. That was a pretty gutsy thing to tell the king. So the king says, okay, here's a gold chain, royal robe. You're now my prime minister. Daniel said he didn't want it. Yeah, get this. If the kingdom's going down, what usually happens to the king? Yeah, he gets killed. What happens to his top guys? They get killed with him. (laughs) You're now my right-hand man, Daniel. If I die, so do you. That very night, King Belshazzar died. The Medes and the Persians took the city. Here's how they did it. They went upstream and they diverted the river. So the water flows out of it. There goes the water. It's gone. Now he brings his army in and they just march right under the gates because there's no water there in their way. They come inside. Now they're between the walls, but the problem of it is they're having a party. And they've left the gates open and the drawbridge is open so everybody can go home after the party. And they just spanned out through the city and it fell with hardly a fight. And King Belshazzar was killed that very night. Daniel, on the other hand, survived. Daniel survived the fall of Jerusalem, even though he was part of the royal family. He trusted in God's prophets who said, cooperate with the Babylonians. He cooperated and ended up their prime minister. Now for the second time, he's prime minister. The Medes and the Persians are coming in. He cooperates with them because God said, that's who's next. And he ends up being their prime, a prime minister in their kingdom as well. Pretty good when most people died in those transitions. It's worth knowing God's prophecies and cooperating with what God says. Daniel proved it. But Cyrus is known as the king from the east that will deliver God's people. Get this. There's a drying up the waters and the deliverance of God's people from the kings of the east. Remember, water represents people. In the very next chapter says that, that this river where they sit. So let's look at this again. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates 
and its water was dried up so the way from the kings of the east might be prepared. Kings from the east? Which way does Jesus come from? At the right hand of the Father. Kings from the east, drying up the river Euphrates, the water, the people that supports Babylon. If you've been through those five plagues, would you start wondering if you chose the wrong side? The support dries up. And look what they have to do to regain control. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So they gather everybody together to go and fight against God. And I can only say that is a really dumb idea. The God who can speak a world into existence, you're going to fight him? I don't think so. Not going to work so well. But that's what they go out to do. And then we get this. Behold, I'm coming as a thief. In the sixth plague, Jesus says this. It's red letters in most of your Bibles. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walks naked and they see his shame. They, and they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Well, we're going to come back to this phrase, but right now let's focus on the Armageddon. They're gathered together to the Battle of Armageddon. Have you ever heard of the Battle of Armageddon? Lots of people talk about it being fought in the Valley of Megiddo. But I'm going to say, I don't think so. Why? Because I think God knows his geography better than this. Why? Let's take a look. Armageddon, Har Moed in Hebrew, means mountain of Megiddo. If God wanted to say Valley of Megiddo, why did he say mountain? Now, mountain of Megiddo, I've been down in the Valley of Megiddo, and there is a mountain that comes right along. It's a rather famous one, Mount Carmel, where there was a showdown between Elijah and God and Baal. Right? Elijah and God on one side, Baal on the other. Do you remember who won that one? God did, right? Satan is out to attack God. Isaiah said it this way, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the furthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. Satan is trying to take God's place. He wants to be on the sides of the north. Yeah, the kings of the north. That's who's behind him, Satan. He's trying to take God's place. And he wants to sit on God's throne. And where did God say he was going to put his throne? In the city of Jerusalem. It all makes sense there, doesn't it? Satan is trying to be in God's place. And so what we have here is a battle for the throne. Satan and his army and God and his army. God's side, you have God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Satan's side has the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. I can tell you which side I want to be on. God's side doesn't lose. Satan's side does. Besides, everybody on Satan's side is miserable. People on God's side end up really happy. I like happy a lot better than miserable anyway. Then the seventh plague happens. 
Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came from the temple of heaven, from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Big earthquake. Really big one. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God, to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Okay? This is all about the wrath of God, the plagues, right? Keep that in mind. Then keep reading. Look at this. Then every island fled away and the mountains were not found. Big earthquake. Really big one. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. That's 50 to 100 pounds. That's a little bigger than your normal hailstones you have here in Texas. You've got some big ones here, though. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. I mean, from beginning to end, they're sure not changing sides, are they? They're just blaspheming God. Folks, what you're looking at is when Jesus delivers his people. Take a comparison to Revelation chapter 6. Then the sky recedes as a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place, and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and Every free man hid themselves in the caves of the rocks and the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the what? Wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come as who, who is able to stand. When Jesus comes, they hide from his face because it's the wrath of God or the wrath of the Lamb. Who's hiding? The same people that were gathered together in the sixth plague to fight against God. What's happening? Mountains and islands are disappearing in both cases. i got a feeling you can't make the mountains disappear that many times in short succession. But yeah, that's what's happening here. So I see this as oops, one in the same event. So people are saying, well, Tim, which is it? Is it a pre-trib or a post-trib return of Christ? Does Jesus come before the tribulation or after? Well, lots of good Christians see that differently from each other. Would you believe that I'm going to give you a little bit of history? I kind of like history. There's a reason that you should know some history. Because when you understand history, you understand what's going on around you better. But if you go back to the early church, what did they teach about the coming of Jesus Christ? By the way, down here, or the Greek documents that this is taken from. I, I get this from a book called The Blessed Hope by Georgie Ladd, who is a pr- professor at Fuller Theological Seminary. Here's what they taught. There would be an antichrist power that would come on the scene. There would be a time of tribulation and plagues. Nobody knew how long it would be. It was indefinite in time period. The church, or God's Israel, his people would be present during that time period. There would be a second coming of Jesus. It would be visible to all. There is a resurrection of the saved and that would start the millennium. That's what the early church taught. Then we have the reformers. Here's what they taught. Same thing with one change. They figured they knew who the Antichrist power was. It was the papal system. Not the Catholic people, but the papal system. Here's some of the guys that taught that. Now, I'm going to use these two charts to illustrate the two most prominent viewpoints today. Historicist is what the reformers were teaching. 
But if you break it out a little bit, you have the Antichrist developing through history. Then at some point you have tribulation plagues in definite duration, don't know how long. Second coming of Christ. Uh, the coming is a thief, the revealing. It's visible to all. There's a resurrection of the saved. And the saved go to heaven and the lost are dead on the earth. But that all starts the thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, the new Jerusalem descends. I notice that pretty much the same over here. So they end in the same spot. A futurist, uh, dispensationalism futurist, teaches that we're traveling along through time. There's a rapture when Jesus comes as a thief, which is invisible to most people. There's a resurrection of the saved. The Christians, the church are taken to heaven. The lost are left alive on earth, wondering what happened, left behind series and things like that. Uh, Antichrist power arises in the power vacuum. There is a seven-year tribulation with plagues at the end of it. Right at the end, you have the revealing where Jesus comes visibly and Jesus and the church return and reign on the earth for a thousand years. And okay, then you're down to the end of it. Now, I started studying this, trying to figure out which one of those was the most biblical accurate model when I was a freshman in college. I've been at this for a while. And I still read people from different viewpoints and listen to their viewpoints all the time. It helps me understand people better. But how do you decide? They can't both be right. But some people say, well, we know they can't both be right, so one of them is right and one of them is wrong. Don't ever fall into that trap. They both can't be right, but they both could be wrong. Just because they're the prominent two doesn't mean one of them is right. All right? So what are we going to do? The only thing I know to do is I get my Bible out and I compare text to this. Inside your study guide, you have a list of texts that we're now going to look at with an A and a B. And you can just circle the one that fits and put an X on the one that doesn't as we go through. But the good news is you now have that as a study guide to go back and look at for yourself and look at the verses in context. All right? So let's take a look at the comparisons. We're going to start out with Revelation 16.15, that verse that is in the sixth plague. The, the issue here from Revelation 16, according to the historicist, Jesus comes right after the plagues as a thief. According to the futurist, Jesus comes as a thief about seven years before the end of the plagues. So one of them has Jesus coming before the plagues and the other right at the end of it. All right? So all we have to do is find a verse that sets up the sequence in in Scripture. That verse, Revelation 16, verse 15. In the sixth plague, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. In the sixth plague, he has not yet come as a thief. He's about to come. He's on the way. If I'm right, that means he shows up in the next one. He's coming. Well, if he's coming as a thief at the end of the plagues, that matches this one. This one misses. So, I would check that as right on the historicist. The next one. By the way, I'm not going to put any more checks on him. You have to figure that out on your own now. Second verse, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, the issue here. Uh, When does this Antichrist develop? Uh, 
and coming as a thief. Does he come when Jesus comes as a thief? Well, let me back up on this one. Does the Antichrist come before Jesus comes as a thief or does the Antichrist come after Jesus comes as a thief? Again, they're just opposites of each other, right? That's why they both can't be right. 2 Thessalonians 2, Now, brethren, concerning the coming, the parousia, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's when he gathers his people, and are gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken or troubled, in mind or troubled, as though the day of Christ had come, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day his parousia, when he comes and gathers his people, will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. So it says it's not going to happen till the Antichrist is revealed. That matches A, not B. So a historicist fits again and the futurist misses. So this actually fits what the reformers taught. Next one, 2 Thessalonians 2.8. When Jesus comes as a thief, does it destroy the Antichrist? Or when Jesus comes as a thief, does it set up the Antichrist? Again, exactly opposites. So let's take a look at it. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. And the word coming is parousia, when he gathers his people. So when he comes as a thief... And, and the parousia is when he comes as a thief. Um, it's going to destroy the Antichrist. Well, that matches A again and B missed. Next one, 2 Peter 3.10. When Jesus comes as a thief, are the lost dead or are the lost alive? Again, opposites. What verse will answer that question? 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come as a what? Thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So when Jesus comes as a thief, it's going to be really hot. Elements will melt. So let's just suppose that the seats in here were not pews with padding, but they were metal chairs. And it got hot enough in this room to melt the metal chairs in the puddles of steel. Would you be sitting in the puddle wondering what happened or would you be dead? Just wondering. Now, I have a friend that worked in the steel mills in Baltimore area, Sparrows Point. And he was a foreman and his crew, there was a guy that was going through a really bad divorce. And he was depressed. And one day he took a running headfirst dive into a blast furnace. He was probably dead before he hit the surface. What are they going to find of him? Nothing. If he had any jewelry, it became alloy in that mix of steel. He's gone. He's, he's part of the black slag that they sweep off the top. Well, if elements melt, that would mean the lost are dead. A fits again. Next one, Matthew 24 and Luke 17. Historicist says the thief and revealing are two different terms for the same event. The futurist says, no, they're two separate terms for two separate events. 
One is the invisible coming of Jesus when he comes in the clouds, but he's not seen. The next one is when he comes visibly in the clouds. Seven years later. Okay. Matthew and Luke, one of them is talking about when Jesus comes as a thief and the other when he's revealed. Now we're going to go through this side back and forth, verse by verse, and you tell me if we're talking about two separate events or the same event. Let's take a look at it. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Luke, for as lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. Pretty similar so far, right? But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. Pretty similar again, aren't they? Matthew and Luke. By the way, one of these is the thief and the other is the revealing. Have you figured out which one's which yet? Okay. Matthew. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. You say, well, that's easy. This one's the rapture. When he comes as a thief. Are you sure? Here's Luke. Two women will be grinding together. One will be taken, the other left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Okay, now which one of these is the revealing and which one is the thief? Or do they sound an awful lot like the same thing? Well, here it is. Matthew, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming parousia, that's when he comes as a thief, of the Son of Man be. So Matthew is the thief. Luke, as it was in the days of Noah, even so it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. But since the description of the events are the same, it must be the same event with different words to describe it. So when you take a look at this, A fits, B doesn't. But here's another issue. If you compare the two, the thief revealing expects that the lost will be dead, but the futurist thinks, well, no, the, during the seven-year tribulation, the lost will still be alive, and after the revealing, the lost will be alive. Let's go back and look at the Matthew and Luke and see. Matthew, and they did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. There were the people in the ark that were saved, and the people outside the ark, were they alive or dead? You had a choice. You could trust God and live or not trust him and die. It's just like that at the time of when Jesus comes. When he comes as a thief. You either live or you die. Okay, what about the revealing? Luke, and one will be taken, the other left. And they answered and said to him, where, Lord? So he said to them, wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. He's saying they're dead where the vultures are gathered together. By the way, bald eagles and vultures eat the same food. Sometimes bald eagles will eat, catch living food. But I used to live in northwest Arkansas, and in the fall, all of a sudden, one day, the vultures were all gone. And within two or three days, we'd have eagles everywhere. And the eagles took over the food chain. 
cleaning up everything. And then in the spring, one day, the eagles are gone. And within a couple of days, the vultures are back. <sighs> He's basically saying wherever the eagles or the vultures are, they're the dead. That's where the dead bodies will be. So in both cases, the thief and the revealing, the lost are dead. So this doesn't fit either. Then there's the 70th week. Historicists say we get to Jesus' baptism. The cross happens three and a half Passover cycles, three and a half years into it, and then the gospel goes to the Gentile world. Jesus is the focal point. But the futurist says, no, we get to Jesus, and then we have this gap of a couple of thousand years. Then Jesus comes as a thief, the rapture, and three and a half years into it, the Antichrist gets a deadly wound. He comes back to life, and uh, you have the plagues at the end of it, and then Jesus is revealed. I want you to notice something. The focus has moved from Jesus to the Antichrist. Remember Satan wants to take God's spot? He just did, but here's another issue. We're going to use this platform to represent a football field. Suppose I'm on a football team and we're playing a really big game. It's called the Super Bowl. All right? There's about, yeah, not quite two minutes left. And we're behind by just a couple of points. And we're on the one-yard line. It's first and goal. The odds are in our favor, right? It's going to be tough, but the odds are in our favor. All we have to do is field goal, do it. First and goal. First one, one yard to go. That's all. So on the first play, one of our players has illegal motion. It's going to be a five-yard penalty down over, right? So the official picks up the football, and he marks off the five-yard penalty like this. And by the way, I've got to take short steps because it's a short football field, okay? <laughs> one, two, three, four, five, and he puts it down on the other one-yard line. Anybody want to guess how many yards that is? No, it's only five. I only counted five times. <laughs> how many football teams would accept that as a five-yard penalty? Or would there be a riot at the Super Bowl? <laughs> I have a question. Is this 490 years or is it already over 2,000 years? See, that's not a 490-year prophecy anymore. It's over 2,000 years. This actually works on the time and the focus is all about the end of righteousness. I mean, end of sin and bringing in everlasting righteousness and anointing Messiah, the Holy One. Everything fits here. It misses here. So once again, historicist fits. Now, where did the idea of futurism come from? <laughs> Would it surprise you to find out it's the papacy from the Counter-Reformation? Alcazar teaches preterism in the late 1500s. Uh, he says Daniel and Revelation are all historical. They're not prophetic. Uh, the little horn is Antiochus Epiphanes and Nero is the beast. 
And it wasn't really prophecy. It was just pretending to be prophecy. There's really no such thing as prophecy. Hmm. That's Alcazar. Ribera comes along. He says, no, it's all future. These are both Jesuit priests, guys. And he says, they're all future. Daniel and Revelation are way down in the future. No present application. It's a bad guy that's going to do bad things at the end. Which one does the church accept? Believe it or not, both of them. I was recently listening to a Catholic radio station while driving, and they said, Daniel's prophecy of the little horn, it's about Antiochus Epiphanes, preterism, but it's, talking about, it's also talking about a bad guy in the future, still teaching both of them. Um, Wikipedia, the view of futurism, a product of the Counter-Reformation, was advanced beginning in the 16th century in response to the identification of the papacy as Antichrist. Francisco Ribera, a Jesuit priest, developed this theory in 1585. St. Bellarmine codified this view, giving in full the Catholic theory set forth by the Greek and Latin fathers of a personal Antichrist to come just before the end of the world and to be accepted by the Jews and enthroned in the temple at Jerusalem thus endeavoring to dispose of the exposition which saw Antichrist in the Pope. The Protestants were protesting against the papacy. That's why they were called Protestants. But the Counter-Reformation was going to take the protest away. Most premillennial dispensationalists now accept Bellarmine's interpretation in modified form. Widespread Protestant identification of the papacy as the Antichrist persisted until the early 1900s when... The Schofield Reference Bible was published by Cyrus Schofield. This commentary promoted futurism, causing a decline in the Protestant identification of the papacy as Antichrist just a little over 100 years ago. So, how did this get into the Protestant movement? In 1826, Samuel Maitland writes an article, uh, or a booklet on it. Then, John Har. Henry Newman, famous preacher, picks it up in the, as part of the Oxford movement. Edward Irving, another famous preacher, starts preaching it. A girl in his area by the name of Margaret MacDonald goes off in vision. She comes back out of vision, and she says, Folks, there's not one coming of Jesus, there's two. Before her in the 1840s, no one had ever thought of dividing the thief and the revealing in the two separate events. Just keep in mind, Part of the deception at the end comes through signs, wonders, and miracles. Dreams and visions can be from God. They can also be from another source. Then John Nelson Darby teaches dispensationalism. Jews were saved by works. Christians are saved by faith. Except my Bible says nobody's saved by works. Schofield Reference Bible comes in on the scene. Now, folks, I have a study Bible. Study Bibles are good. But always keep in mind this. The notes at the bottom part of the page, they are not God's. <laughs> okay? The text up above is from God. The notes below are not. Keep that in mind, no matter whose study Bible you're using. Hal Lindsey comes along and writes The Late Great Planet Earth. I still have my copy that I got while I was in college, starting to study this stuff. Back in the 70s, he popularized it. And then came films like Years of the Beast, Thief in the Night, and stuff like that. They showed to the youth groups. And once you've watched the movie, who needs to read the book? 
And today, the majority of Christian, Christians are futurist from that history. Even though 100 years ago, the majority of Protestants were not. Does it really matter which one I believe? What if there's no second chance? You see, futurism teaches that at the rapture, coming as a thief, you're taken up to heaven, but there are others that are left behind and they can become tribulation saints, except Jesus during the seven-year tribulation. But what if there is no seven-year second chance? Well, you could be in big trouble, couldn't you? I've actually met people who said, you know, I know I'm not living right, but I know that I'll have seven years to get my act together after the rapture. How do you know you're going to be alive then? You could die tonight on your way home. I could die the night on my way home to your house. (laughs) with those guys. (laughs) So I don't have to worry about a second chance because I'm taking advantage of this one. It could be big danger if you don't trust in Jesus now. What about preparation for the tribulation? I've got a dear friend who says, I don't need to study this stuff because I'm going to be gone out of here. I don't need to know anything about the beast or what happens then. But what if she's not gone? Boy, that would set her wide up for deceptions, wouldn't it? What about being blindsided by the Antichrist and the false prophet, Satan's false trinity? Boy, if you're not studying, you could be easily surprised. Now, let's just suppose for a minute my friend and I are walking down the street together. She believes futurism. I believe historicism. She believes Jesus is coming as a thief. God's people will be taken up. Nobody will see it, but we'll go up in the clouds. But she and I are walking down the street together one day, and there's a trumpet blast, but nobody sees anything. And all God's faithful people are taken up into the clouds to meet him. Hey, I'm trusting in Jesus, right? So I go up in the clouds to meet him. Do you think I'm going to walk up to Jesus and say, Hey, Jesus, this is not the way I expected it. Please put me down there for the tribulation. I would say, thank you, Jesus. This is great. Did you just catch something? If I'm wrong, what have I lost? Nothing. Let's reverse it. What if my friend's wrong? She doesn't have a second chance. That could mean everything. Big loss. Uh, She's not prepared because she doesn't think she'll be here. She and her husband are both military and they're both gung-ho against radical Islam. What does that mean? When this holy war breaks out in the open, they will be joining the papal side simply because the papacy is the only one that stopped radical Islam twice. And the papacy will go, who's joining us to stop the Antichrist Muslim power? And they're already calling them that. Wally Chubot, Joel Richardson, Joel Rosenberg, Tim LaHaye, Glenn Beck have all used those terms talking about Islam. A blinding deception that could easily overpower. Now, if I'm wrong, it's great. If she's wrong, it's deadly serious trouble. 
who would set up something that doesn't match scripture very well but could really be dangerous to people? I don't think that's God that does that. That's why it's very, very important for you to check what you believe on the return of Christ and the tribulation and match it to scripture to make sure you're really trusting in Jesus as it revealed in his word. So when I look at this, which one fits? I find that historicis fits. All the details have fit. And that's where I have chosen to be on this one. All right. We're getting really close to the end of it. This, pro, this third conflict with Islam, if I'm right, the Pope called for war in August of 2014. It's just getting ready for the final push. You have a last warning message to the world. Michael stands up and there's a time of trouble like there never was. It will happen very, very quickly once it breaks loose, I believe. Based on the words of the scripture, it's like a whirlwind. So it's exciting to me. I'm not upset about it. I want to see Jesus come. I want to see what he's going to, you know, I just, it's going to be fabulous. Looking forward to it. And I want to focus on Jesus. If you focus on the troubles, ladies, how many of you have had a baby? Quite a few of you, right? Would you tell an uh, expectant mother to focus on the pain or to focus on the baby? (laughs) If you're a Christian, are you going to tell people to focus on the trouble or on Jesus? And Jesus and the Bible uses childbirth as an illustration of his coming. All right? Keep focused on Jesus. Our next presentation is going to be, whoops, no, it's not. Well, it actually kind of is. Tomorrow morning at, 11, at 9.30, the times of Daniel 11 and 12. Also, uh, the one Saturday night at 7.30 is going to be when Jesus delivers his people. What will it be like for God's people when he's delivering them? And it's going to be really, really good. The deliverance is better than some of you may have expected. Uh, And so we're going to get into the biblical evidence on that one. So on this one, it's seminar number eight. And again, pull out your response envelope. Yes, no, or question mark. The reformers taught that the papacy was the Antichrist with a post-tribulation return of Christ, meaning at the end of the tribulation. This view is now called historicism. So the reformers taught that the papacy was the Antichrist, and this is the historicism, which is A on your charts. Yes, no, or question mark. Number two, in the Counter-Reformation, papists taught that the Antichrist is future. This is now taught in modified form by most Protestants. This viewpoint is now called futurism, also dispensationalism. Most futurists teach a pre-tribulation return of Christ. Number three, historicism with its Post-tribulation return of Christ agrees with scripture, while futurism has some serious problems. Number four, the idea of a second chance could be fatal if someone postpones their decision to follow Jesus now. And number five, pastor would like to know this one. 
If any of you'd like to know more about what Adventists believe, you put a yes down, um, and he will connect with you. Tomorrow morning at 9.30, the times of Daniel 11 and 12. At 11 a.m., I'm going to deal with the unholy alliances and prophecy. What about politics in our world today? (laughs) That's what I'm going to get into. You know, there are two things that you're not supposed to talk about in lots of barbershops and taxi cabs, religion or politics. I'm going to wade into dealing with both of them at the same time. And, uh, (laughs) (laughs) I will. And we're going to look at the relationship of Daniel 11 with Revelation 13 and Revelation 11. It will be amazing. And it will help you understand how to survive and manipulate through a very divided political world. It's not just the United States, folks. It's happening all over the world. And again, that's not right. It's time uh, the, when Jesus delivers his people is what we're going to be looking at. Let's close with prayer. Dear Lord, thanks for your word. And Lord, you promised to send your Holy Spirit to lead and guide us in the truth. Lord, I've been honestly studying and trying to share that, but I'm human. I could always be wrong. And so, Lord, I don't ask you to help these people follow me. I ask that you pour out your spirit to guide them and check for themselves to make sure what your word says and give them the courage to always follow that, no matter what anybody else says or does. In Jesus' name I ask it. And I thank you. Amen.